The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate uh, the patience of both members and the nominees who are conferring with the ranking member on the question of nominations. So we're here today to consider nominations for four very important positions. Uh, Ambassador Juliet Valls-Noyes to be Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migrations. Ambassador Barbara Leaf to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Ms. Julianne Smith to be Ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. And Ambassador Denise Bauer to be the Ambassador to France and Monaco. So congratulations on all your nominations. Uh, the four of you have a distinguished history of public service. We appreciate your willingness to continue to serve our country. We also appreciate your families uh, because uh, it is the sacrifices families as well who are engaged uh, in the service by their support and sometimes travel abroad. So we thank them. Uh, before I continue, I understand that the distinguished senator from Virginia is privileged to make three introductions. Uh, so. I don't get three introductions from New Jersey, and I'm the chairman. So in any event, uh, Senator Kane will recognize you now. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair and Ranking Member Rich, for scheduling this hearing on four such uh, wonderfully qualified nominees. It is my pleasure to introduce three of the nominees, two from Virginia, one from California, who is a very close friend. Uh, Denise Campbell-Bauer, to be Ambassador to France and Monaco. Uh, Julieta Noyes, to be Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration, and Barbara Leaf to be Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Um, I previously introduced Ambassador Bauer to this committee in 2013 when she was nominated to be Ambassador to Belgium. I've had a chance to know Denise and her family now for about 15 years. She had a distinguished career in journalism, nonprofits, and domestic and international politics, but in particular in her service in Belgium, she served at a most challenging time. In March of 2016, Belgium was uh, subject to coordinated terrorist attacks at the same time as France also underwent those attacks. And at that point, Ambassador Bauer, she'll describe, worked very hard to keep Americans safe, to, to, to work with our ally Belgium, and even coordinate some activities between Belgium and France. Um, as Ambassador to Belgium, she was unanimously uh, confirmed by the Senate. She worked very, very hard on that transatlantic relationship and to advance U.S. policy goals in Europe. And as you know, the U.S. presence in Belgium also includes the NATO and um, uh, EU missions. And so Belgium, the Belgian ambassador, has a lot of important uh, work in those um, multilateral efforts. Her on-the-ground experience in the region, leading the implementation of U.S. foreign policy at a challenging time, has demonstrated her ability and would uh, make her very, very fit to serve as our ambassador in France and Monaco. Um, ambassador Noyes exemplifies the dedication of career foreign service officers and their families, uh, many of whom call Virginia home uh, when they are not serving overseas. I've had a chance to see Ambassador Noyes' work up close and personal. I met her in several occasions uh, when she was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Western Europe from 2013 to 2015. And again, in Spain, when I had the honor, as did the chair of this committee, to serve as honorary chair of the U.S.-Spain Council. Ambassador Noyce has served the country with great skill while raising three children um, together with her husband, who is also a Foreign Service alum, now a retired officer with 29 years of service. Two of her children wisely attended Virginia universities, University of Virginia and Christopher Newport University. 
And I would note in particular, Mr. Chair, that in this position, uh, working on important issues of population, refugees, and migration, uh, Julieta has a powerful family experience. She's the daughter of Cuban refugees and would bring that personal passion to the important work of state in this area. Um, finally, I want to introduce Ambassador Barbara Leaf, another Virginian. I noticed that she's a proud alumni of William & Mary and the University of Virginia, but she's wearing only a William & Mary brooch today and not the UVA brooch. She probably had hoped I wouldn't point that out. But she is a very well-qualified nominee for the position of Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. She comes to the committee with a deep background in Near East and Middle East politics. She was a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and previously served as our ambassador to the UAE and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Arabian Peninsula in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. This, this struck me. Uh, all of these State Department career folks are wonderful in foreign language proficiencies, but listen to this. Ambassador Leaf speaks Arabic, French, Italian, and Serbo-Croatian. She'll lead the Bureau with integrity and enthusiasm, and I'm proud to introduce this great Virginian to the committee. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Well, thank you, uh, Senator Kane, for that introduction of all of our distinguished nominees. I know that Senator Shaheen is very happy to see uh, four incredibly talented women before the committee. So let me uh, continue now. Uh, briefly, I, I had a conversation with a ranking member, and I appreciate his attention to the seriousness of the situation we have on nominees in the committee. We have uh, over 70 nominees pending before the committee, uh, and we have over 50 completed files. So uh, I look forward to working with uh, the ranking members so that we can continue to expedite uh, those uh, nominees uh, in the days ahead. Okay. Um, I am now being told that Senator Shaheen has also got an introduction to make. So, Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member Risch. I am very honored to be able to join Senator Kane in doing introductions this morning, um, particularly to be able to introduce Julie Smith, President Biden's nominee to be ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. As chair of the Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security Cooperation and co-chair of the Senate NATO Observer Group, um, like other members of this committee, I understand very clearly the importance of um, Ms. Smith's experience and expertise in what she will bring to this role. Julie's resume and background is a testament to her commitment to the Transatlantic Alliance. Her career has spanned 25 years crossing the pond to work on transatlantic security issues both in and out of government. She's worked at both the Pentagon and the White House, and has worked at some of America's most esteemed think tanks, including the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the German Marshall Fund, and the Center for a New American Security. And Julie, of course, is no stranger to this committee. She testified in 2017 here on the U.S.-Russia bilateral relationship, and her expertise drawn from many years researching transatlantic relations has benefited those in and out of government. She spent the last three years researching and writing on Europe's evolving attitudes and vulnerabilities as they relate to China, a subject that we all know very well on this committee. Julie's also worked to bring foreign policy to audiences outside the Beltway, most recently launching a program called Across the Pond in the Field to bring Europeans to 12 U.S. cities to talk to Americans about foreign policy. Her 
accolades and accomplishments alone make her worthy of confirmation, but I also want to highlight Julie's leadership as a mentor to women in the national security space. And yes, Mr. Chairman, I was very excited to see four women on the dais this morning who have been nominated to be ambassadors. And um, Julie has been involved for a long time in mentoring, mentoring women. She co-founded the Leadership Council for Women in National Security to provide a support network for women in a predominantly male space. And because of her leadership, there are a number of women in Washington who proudly call themselves mentees of Julie. And I'm also pleased to um, recognize Julie's husband, David, who's here with her this morning, and her, I think it's her, your older son, uh, Liam, who is also here. Um, as a mother, her family has kept her on her toes. And I can appreciate that because I know that as a working mom, you have to juggle a lot of things, which is really important to the world of diplomacy. So for all of these reasons, I'm very happy to have Julie's nomination before this committee. I'm sure that my colleagues will appreciate her responses, and I hope, Mr. Chairman, that we do have an agreement to move forward these nominees. It's critical to ensure that American foreign policy can continue. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. So uh, let me just briefly reference the positions uh, that these nominees are being nominated for. Ambassador Valls Noyes, uh, congratulations on your nomination. Uh, you bring a distinguished record of diplomatic and management experience to the role, including your most recent assignments leading the Foreign Service Institute and serving as U.S. Ambassador to Croatia. As you know, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration is responsible for addressing some of the most pressing global challenges we have today. According to the United Nations, at the beginning of the year, there will be more than 82 million forcibly displaced people in the world, of whom 26.4 million are refugees. No doubt that number has only grown and will continue to grow. From the global forced migration crisis to the humanitarian emergencies in Venezuela, Ethiopia, Syria, and Afghanistan, the United States must lead in addressing the acute needs that exist today and the long-term drivers of these crises. The task before you is immense, and I recommend if you are confirmed that you develop strong consultative relationships with the many refugee and resettlement organizations that have deep expertise in this area, and I'm confident they would welcome your engagement. Let me say a few words specifically about Afghanistan and the dire humanitarian, humanitarian crisis there. Nearly half of the entire population, more than 18 million people, need humanitarian assistance right now. More than 4 million Afghans are internally displaced, and the outgoing instability and violence may very well produce large flows of refugees into neighboring countries in the coming months, which would create a great deal of instability. The PRM Bureau will be at the helm of the U.S. response to this crisis, and your leadership will be essential to ensuring that our response meets the moment. Ambassador Leif, uh, welcome back to the committee. Uh, I'm pleased that you stopped by our office to have a little bit of a tour of the region. I'm hopeful that we can get you quickly in place so the Bureau and the whole department can benefit from your decades of experience. Despite repeated efforts from multiple administrations to pivot to great power competition, the Middle East and North Africa remain central focal points of challenges and I believe some opportunities for the United States. As you know, Iran has continued to advance its nuclear program, and I believe the United States must pursue all options to find a negotiated deal that addresses not just Iran's nuclear program, 
but also its support for terrorism and its ballistic missile activity. Lebanon is on the brink of collapse. Tunisia, once a bastion of hope for people all over the region, is experiencing a trouble, troubling black slide from the democratic reforms, and I have yet to understand exactly what the administration's plan is for Syria. As Iraq heads towards elections, we have an opportunity to engage with leadership and Iraqis who want a brighter future. And I am hopeful that more countries across the region will build on the historic diplomatic relations between Israel, the United Emirates, and Bahrain in the Abraham Accords. Overall, I believe we need to reinvigorate our diplomatic presence and outreach in the region in which our policy has slowly become more and more militarized. And I trust that you're up to that task. Ms. Smith, we welcome your nomination. Glad that the President uh, selected you for this critical post. Uh, during, this during his administration, President Trump repeatedly attacked NATO and our allies. This unfortunately drew criticism from both sides of the aisle in the Senate, evidence that bipartisan support for the alliance is strong. President Biden's visit to NATO earlier this year helped to repair ties, but work remains to be done to ensure that our allies understand that the United States is steadfast in its support for the alliance. You have the, an exemplary background, experience, intellect, and judgment to represent the United States at NATO, and I hope that we can get you out there as soon as possible. There are many important conversations happening in Brussels right now about the future of NATO, what its mission will be in the new world in which we live, and we need an ambassador there as soon as possible. Ambassador Bauer, I'm uh, pleased to see you again before the committee. I appreciated your leadership of the embassy team in Belgium, especially during the 2016 Brussels terrorist attack in which Americans were killed and injured. It's critical that the United States has an experienced ambassador in Paris, where we have so many issues to advance with their government, from counterterrorism in the Sahel to support for allied democracies in the Eastern Mediterranean. France is also critical to our policy objectives in Iran and Russia. And I've appreciated the French foreign minister and ambassador's engagement with the Senate on these issues. So we look forward to hearing your goals of how we can deepen our oldest diplomatic relationship even further. So let me close uh, with saying that the four of you have immense challenges ahead. I'm confident that your experience can serve our country well as you take on new responsibilities if confirmed. And we look forward to each of your testimonies. Let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch, for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, first of all, on regarding the nominees, I appreciate the conversation. We'll continue that. I committed to you and I continue to commit to you that I will work in good faith to get these people in place. I was a governor. I understand that uh, you can't operate unless you have your team in place. Uh, I, you and I have worked hard to get them to the floor. And as we both know, that that's got a special problem that neither you or I have control over. And I get a lot of complaints that, uh, that you and I can't deal with because it is a floor problem. So but I'll continue to work in good faith and see if we can't move these, uh, these forward. Um, thank, uh, thank all of you uh, for uh, taking the opportunity and undertaking the privilege of serving the United States in these uh, important positions. And your families, as the chairman mentioned, uh, this is a uh, sacrifice that is borne uh, equally by the families. Uh, I want to talk briefly about each of these. Uh, first of all, uh, for the Assistant Secretary of State for the Near Eastern Affairs, the Middle East region remains shaped by seemingly intractable problems, including Arab-Israeli tensions, continued export of Iranian terrorism, uh, the humanitarian crisis in Syria, and Yemen, and growing Chinese and Russian encroachment. 
I'm concerned that the current administration's approach to these uh, dilemmas appears to not strike the appropriate balance and runs the risk of ceding the region to other uh, malevolent powers. And I think everyone knows of what I speak there. The administration's precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan has been a strategic unforced error, as uh, both the chairman and I uh, focused on yesterday. Additionally, its uh, diplomatic embrace of the Iranian regime is hard to understand. Uh, the lack of focus on the Abraham Accords uh, is uh, befuddling, to say the least. Increased barriers to conventional arms transfers and the chilling of relations uh, with our traditional uh, Middle Eastern partners will send a message of American disengagement, which I do not believe that we want to do. Uh, the Abraham Accords, I think especially, need to be embraced. Uh, they need to be enhanced. They need to be uh, uh, further moved uh, forward. And I know that uh, as I watch the administration, I think there's a lot of reluctance simply because it was an action by the previous administration. But that was a tremendous success, and we should celebrate it uh, and uh, exploit it as best we can. Like the chairman, I'm also, uh, uh, un I don't understand what Syria policy is today. Uh, we, need, uh, we need to understand that. I hear rumors, and I, I, they are hopefully uh, not true, about the administration's uh, thoughts regarding Assad and his rehabilitation or remaining in place. Uh, that's a wrong-headed approach, but in any event, uh, we do need an approach that everyone understands. Now is the time for the United States to reinforce that we stand with our partners and are up to the challenge. I expect to hear how you plan to improve our engagement in the region and address the serious risks ahead of us. Next, we have the nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. The administration's botched evacuation from Afghanistan has resulted in thousands of refugees and internally displaced people inside the country. Taken with the ongoing refugee crisis endured by Syrians, Venezuelans, and the Rohingya, we now face the world's largest refugee and migration numbers ever. Through the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, the U.S. government provides significant assistance to humanitarian partners, including the United Nations. It is crucial that we ensure all of this assistance meets U.S. US national security needs and receives proper oversight. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these issues. I also remain deeply concerned with the Biden administration's decision to restart funding to UNRWA. This organization has a history of using textbooks which incite violence against Israelis as well as, um, uh, as employees with ties to Hamas. We should secure true reforms before giving another dime to this organization. Moving on to the nominee for U.S. Ambassador to NATO. NATO is the world's most successful political and military alliance in the history of the, of, uh, the planet. But it is 72 years old and must be flexible to meet new challenges. NATO will need to continue to deal with Russia and aggression on its southern border and must also be aware of China's growing direct threat of alliance. The balance of power in the world today is incredibly different than it was 72 years ago. Last year's uh, NATO 2030 report attempted to address some of these emerging issues and recommended that NATO's strategic concept be updated to address China-related issues as well as ways that uh, allies can improve political coordination. I hope to see these recommendations followed. NATO is also a nuclear alliance. Membership in the Nuclear Ban Treaty is incompatible with being a U.S. ally and NATO member. We must push back strongly on any efforts by NATO members to lend credibility to that treaty or to weaken our nuclear sharing arrangements. Lastly, I'm worried by the disregard we showed 
uh, our NATO allies in our hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. This administration has repeatedly emphasized the importance of our allies, yet the way we went about this evacuation has sent our partners the exact opposite message. Our allies deserve better, especially after invoking Article 5 following the 9-11 attacks and fighting alongside our troops for more than 20 years. They are livid. I think everyone in this room knows that. And it will be our, uh, be our job, your job, to fix that. Finally, we have a nominee for Ambassador France in Monaco. The United States has long enjoyed close relations with France, and it remains one of our closest allies. In Africa, I look forward to continued engagement with our French partners on important challenges, including in the Sahel, uh, Cameroon, the DRC, and the Central African Republic, to ensure we pursue mutually beneficial approaches. France's, France's ambassador here in the United States is an excellent friend and ally, and I have seen and experienced France's desire for a stronger alliance firsthand. Now is a critical time for us to make real progress in the relationship. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. With that, thank you, Senator Miller. Thank you, Senator Rich. We'll turn to our nominees now. I ask that you summarize your statement in about five minutes or so, because the committee will want to ask you questions. Your full statements will be included in the record <laughs> without objection. Um, and um, if you have family members who could be with you today, please don't hesitate to introduce them. And with that, we'll start with Ambassador Noyes and then work uh, our way down the aisle. Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch. It is an honor to appear before you as President Biden's nominee as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. I am grateful to him and to Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. I am the first person ever nominated for this position from a refugee background. My parents and members of my extended family entered the United States as refugees from Cuba 61 years ago and later became proud American citizens. Our family is profoundly aware of the debt we owe to this great nation, and indeed, I joined the State Department in part to repay that debt. When given an opportunity, refugees and vulnerable migrants can become valued contributors to the countries that receive them. My hardworking family members happily give back to this country as taxpayers and engaged citizens. I'm honored to introduce you to one of them today, my mother, Julieta Valls. In addition to raising a family, my mom worked in international development for years, presenting the best of America to people in other nations. And senators, I want to thank you for scheduling this hearing today so I can wish her a happy birthday on the congressional record. I'm also joined by my wonderful husband, Nick, a retired Foreign Service officer whose mother also emigrated to America. Our children, Alexandra, Nicholas, and Matthew, are watching online. My family's support has enabled me to serve our country. I love and I thank them. In over 35 years as an American diplomat, I have worked to advance human rights, refugee, and migration issues in multiple positions outside of PRM. As ambassador to Croatia, I presided over the final stages of a US-funded refugee resettlement program and hosted a regional conference on refugees. My mission also ran regional training programs for police, prosecutors, and justice officials on topics that included supporting the rights of migrants. As a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the, Western, in the European Bureau, I managed relations with 11 Western European countries and the European Union, some of our key partners in supporting at-risk populations around the world. As Deputy Chief of Mission at our Embassy to the Vatican, I worked with church leaders, religious communities, and Catholic aid organizations on issues like combating human trafficking. 
While Director for Multilateral and Global Affairs in the Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor Bureau, I oversaw international negotiations on human rights resolutions at the United Nations and conducted human rights consultations with multiple partners. I was a member of the high-level delegations that reported to the UN on US compliance with two major international treaties, the Convention Against Torture and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Earlier in my career, I worked on democracy, human rights, and foreign aid issues in the Western Hemisphere. I would bring these experiences to bear as PRM Assistant Secretary and, if confirmed, would seek to strengthen America's leadership on global humanitarian and migration issues. One of my most urgent priorities would be to help the vulnerable people of Afghanistan, wherever they may be. Sadly, there are also millions of other vulnerable populations worldwide. Working with partners like USAID, I would prioritize life-saving humanitarian assistance and protections for people from Syria, Burma, South Sudan, Venezuela, and beyond. I also would advance support for maternal health and humanitarian crises and respond to gender-based violence, upholding the administration's commitment to women's health. If confirmed, I would ramp up engagement with other countries to pursue durable solutions to the problems that lead people to flee their countries, including in our own hemisphere. Another key PRM priority is to rebuild the US Refugee Admissions Program, as directed by the President. If confirmed, I would collaborate with the Departments of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services and work with Congress to ensure the program's success. It is a testament to the generosity of Americans that the United States is the largest humanitarian aid donor in the world, but we cannot meet all global needs alone. If confirmed, I would carefully manage the US taxpayer funds that enable PRM's work and urge other nations to share this responsibility more equitably. I am eager to work with PRM's exceptional partners in international and non-governmental organizations, Senate willing, to carry out PRM's mission. And if confirmed, it would, above all, be a privilege to learn from and lead the hardworking, passionate employees of PRM. Their dedication is inspirational. Senator Menendez, Senator Risch, members of this committee, my nomination as PRM Assistant Secretary is the greatest professional honor of my life. If confirmed, I would give my all to lead PRM in supporting persecuted and vulnerable people around the world in keeping with our nation's centuries-long history of compassion and generosity. As the daughter of refugees, I understand that history and that responsibility acutely. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, feliz cumpleaños, Senora Valls. I would sing my famous birthday song, but it would take too long for the committee's uh, consideration, <laughs> so maybe after the fact. Uh, Ambassador Bauer. There you go. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane, for that very kind introduction. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. It is my great honor to be President Biden's nominee to be United States Ambassador to France and Monaco. I am deeply grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me. And of course, I am thankful for my husband of nearly 30 years, Stephen, our wonderful daughters, Catherine and Natalie, my extended family, and everyone who has supported me over the years. If confirmed, I will work closely with this committee and the Congress as I dedicate myself to protecting and advancing U.S. interests in Monaco and France. 
I would be proud to join the talented, dedicated State Department and interagency teams hard at work pursuing those goals. I saw firsthand the superb commitment our embassy teams provide U.S. citizens and businesses when I served as U.S. Ambassador to Belgium from 2013 to 2017. On March 22nd of 2016, my daughter Natalie was already on the bus on her way to school when Brussels was attacked by terrorists. I raced into the office as our team rallied to coordinate with and support our Belgian colleagues to help victims and guard against follow-on attacks. This challenging time left no doubt why American embassies matter. Our team worked hand in glove with the Belgians and they were there for our fellow Americans so that they weren't alone far from home during perhaps the worst time in their lives. It would be my great honor to again serve the American people now as ambassador to France. I'd like to highlight a few of the pillars of our partnership that I would bolster as ambassador. France, as you've noted, is among our most capable and reliable military allies. As NATO allies, France and the United States have built and sustained the post-war global order, promoting freedom and prosperity. France is the second largest global troop footprint after the United States and is the second largest troop contributor to the de-ISIS coalition. France has reached its NATO goal of 2% of GDP on defense spending and contributes to NATO missions and exercises. The United States and France exchange information and share best practices on countering violent extremist threats, and France leads on countering terrorism in the Sahel, where it has eliminated leaders of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and their affiliates. If confirmed, I will not only ensure our cooperation continues, but we'll look for ways to strengthen this important partnership. France welcomes the United States' return to the Paris Agreement and is eager to engage in closer cooperation and strategic alignment on climate issues, particularly climate finance, clean energy, green recovery, and the using trade and financial flows to further Paris Agreement objectives. The United States and France share a deep economic relationship. France and the United States traded $99 billion of goods and services in 2020, making France me, one of our largest trading partners in the EU. France works on coordination with the United States and other partners to hold Russia and China accountable for their destabilizing activities, human rights abuses, and violations of international norms. France has played a significant role in shaping the EU policy towards the PRC and supports the EU, US-EU dialogue on China, where we seek a values-driven approach. If confirmed, I will advocate strongly with the French government that we must hold Russia accountable for its actions and maintain pressure on the Kremlin to adhere to its international commitments and ob obligations, including the Minsk agreements. And finally, the United States shares many of the same goals with France when it comes to Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. On all the challenges facing those countries, France seeks deeper cooperation with the United States. If confirmed, I also look forward to fostering our relationship with the Principality of Monaco and working together with His Serene Highness Prince Albert II and his government to further our joint goals. Of course, if confirmed,
I will con consider it my primary responsibility to ensure the safety and security of the embassy community and all Americans in France and Monaco. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. And, uh, Ms. Smith. Good morning, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is an honor to be nominated to be the permanent representative of the United States to NATO. I want to extend my thanks to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for placing their trust in me for this critical position. If confirmed, I look forward to supporting the President's pledge to revitalize and strengthen America's alliances. I also want to thank Senator Sheehan for her kind words and leadership in the NATO Observers Group. Let me start today by thanking my family, my husband David, and our two sons, Liam and Dylan, for their love and support. David and Liam are with us here today. My son Dylan is tucked away in second grade at school. I am proud to be a woman working in the field of national security, but my greatest joy comes from my family. I also want to thank my parents who are watching in my home state of Michigan and my sister for their guidance and encouragement. I have worked on a wide range of national security challenges over the years, but Europe has always been my passion. Ever since I received a scholarship to spend a year at the Sorbonne as an undergraduate, I have been fascinated by America's longstanding relationship with our closest allies across the Atlantic. From my first job at a small think tank here in Washington, D.C., to my positions in the Pentagon, at the White House, and now the State Department, I have worked to strengthen our relationship with Europe, navigate our differences, and identify innovative ways to address our shared challenges. No institution has played a bigger role in the history of the transatlantic relationship than the NATO alliance. Since its creation in 1949, it has served as the bedrock of transatlantic security, protecting our shared values and safeguarding each of its members against outside aggression. NATO's story is a remarkable one of unity and solidarity. After the end of the Cold War, NATO's story became one of adaptation. Over the last 30 years, NATO has added 14 new members, developed new partnerships in the Middle East and Asia, agreed to operate in new warfighting domains such as cyber, and acquired new capabilities to respond to an array of emerging challenges, from terrorism to disruptive technologies to climate change. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the alliance has bolstered its deterrence and defense posture, including through the deployment of multinational battle groups on its eastern flank. Despite the fact that it makes decisions by consensus, NATO has repeatedly showcased its ability to take action quickly when it counts. It swiftly invoked Article 5 in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, for which the United States will always remain deeply grateful. While NATO is rightly heralded as the most successful military alliance in history, the alliance, now almost 75 years old, does have its share of challenges. Some allies are still struggling to meet their commitments to increase defense spending. Decision-making remains slow, and the weakening of democratic values in some member states is tearing at alliance cohesion. 
Allies are also making slow progress in the hard work of improving their military capabilities, especially in new domains like cyber and space. If confirmed, I look forward to working with our NATO allies and partners to address such shortfalls and prepare the alliance to face future challenges. I will also look forward to working with allies on the important task of drafting a new strategic concept, which was last updated 10 long years ago. That document must reflect the changing security environment of today, especially Russian aggression, threats we face in cyberspace, and the People's Republic of China's malign activities across the Euro-Atlantic region. I will work to ensure that none of those new challenges detract from the Alliance's core task of ensuring a strong deterrence and defense for all its members. I believe that part of NATO's success rests with the strong bipartisan support one finds both here in Congress and among the American public. I was heartened to see the enthusiastic welcome that the Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, received when he addressed Congress in 2019. If confirmed, I will ensure that bipartisan support continues and would look forward to welcoming congressional delegations to Brussels. It would be my great honor to represent the United States at NATO. I believe in this alliance. I believe in the important role it plays in America's own defense. And I believe in our critical leadership role inside it. I look forward to your questions and thank you for your consideration. Thank you very much, Ambassador Leith. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of this committee. It's an honor to be here as President Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. If confirmed, this would be the culmination of a lifetime of work on behalf of the U.S. in the Middle East and North Africa. My story is like that of many Americans called to public service, inspired by multiple generations of family members who served. My family has had someone serving in the U.S. military continuously for almost 80 years. Much of my wider family were also called upon to support those who served, making their own sacrifices. My mother managed to raise six children on a tobacco farm in Southern Maryland during the years my father, an Air Force pilot, served in far-off places. I remember on an early assignment in the Foreign Service, I met up with my oldest brother, Tim Leaf, here behind me, who is representing the whole Leaf Guerin clan. I met up with him uh, as a deployed Marine officer in the streets of newly liberated Kuwait. My youngest brother deployed repeatedly to Iraq and Afghanistan with great costs borne by his young family. My younger sister is a foreign service officer, now serving in Southern Africa, far from family and friends. My husband, Chris Quarren, had a distinguished career in the Marine Corps, taking him to Jerusalem, where we met early in my career. He and our two daughters, Maro and Asya, provided the unstinting, loving support that enabled me to shoulder what was asked of me, even when that meant being apart from them when I served a year in Iraq. So service is a theme in my family, and service has more relevance today for Americans than ever before. In the Middle East, President Biden's strategic vision provides a roadmap and a set of principles for our engagements based on rebuilding long-term relationships in the region. If confirmed, I will work to reinforce those partnerships around an affirmative agenda, focused on building shared prosperity, but also confronting shared problems, 
fighting COVID-19, developing an international health infrastructure to prevent future pandemics, building a new energy economy around renewables to arrest the drivers of climate change, addressing desertification and growing water shortages, combating transnational repression while promoting respect for fundamental freedoms and open societies, and sustaining the core institutions of the international order that have provided security and stability for over 70 years. If confirmed, I pledge to represent the best of American values and will make it clear that relationships with the US are stronger when human rights principles are respected. The region has been convulsed by conflict and instability for over the past two decades, but many of our partners have turned towards de-escalation and to working with the US to quell the region's conflicts. Iran, of course, is, has been the outlier to this trend. Tehran continues to pursue destabilizing policies, including through its support for terrorism, its ballistic missile program, its subversive support for violent groups, and its abhorrent human rights record and longstanding practice of using wrongfully detained US citizens as political tools. And Iran with a nuclear weapon would pose an even greater threat. As part of the administration's renewed multilateral engagement, if confirmed, I will work in tandem with regional partners and allies to advance UN peace processes in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. The president's vision for a collaborative relationship with the countries of the Middle East comes in the wider context of a growing global challenge to our values of open societies and open economies. This challenge comes primarily from the People's Republic of China and Russia. Both pursue influence in the region in a zero-sum fashion. If confirmed, I expect to have frank conversations with our partners about the challenges posed by certain Russian and Chinese actions. And if confirmed, I will not be able to accomplish this ambitious agenda without the outstanding foreign service officers, civil servants, contractors, and family members employed here and in the region. I'm committed to promoting the safety and security of our people overseas as a paramount priority, supporting the professional development of our employees and the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the Bureau and our posts around the region. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you as we reshape, rebuild, and re-energize the US government's engagement with the Middle East, building a better future for the American people and the people of the region. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you all very much. Uh, before I start my questions, let me start uh, a series of questions that we ask every nominee that comes before the committee. And um, they are on behalf of the full committee. And I just simply ask you for a verbal yes or no answer. Uh, these are questions that speak to the importance of the committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch. And we expect and would be seeking from you. So I'll ask each of you to provide a, just a yes or no answer to the following. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Did I get four yeses there? Yes. Okay. yes. okay. Do you commit to engaging in a meaningful consultation while pro policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. yes. And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. yes. All right. Thank you all for that. 
for the record, all four nominees answered yes to all the questions. So let me start a series of five-minute rounds. Um, uh, Ambassador uh, Noyes, uh, how can the department and the PRM in particular help ensure that thousands of Afghans uh, who, allies, who were left behind when the last U.S. military plane departed on August 30th have equal access to evacuations. This will be uh, one of the most uh, critical, immediate challenges that you'll have. Um, give me a sense of how you envision your department's uh, participation in that. Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, I think I speak for all of my colleagues at the State Department to say how proud we were to see how many people we were able to get out of Afghanistan and how heartbroken we were to see that we couldn't get out everyone that we wanted to. The uh, President, the Secretary, have made clear their intention to uphold the commitment that we had to the people who worked for us, to the people who qualify for special immigrant visas, and we will continue to work to process their cases and get them out. We have also made available uh, consideration for referral under refugee uh, programs, the P2 refugee referrals, and other ways of getting uh, access to resettlement in the United States. We also would commit to working with international organizations like the High Commissioner for Refugees to seek resettlement for people at risk in other countries, not just in the United States. So our commitment to uphold the human rights and to protect the vulnerable people of Afghanistan through resettlement, if that's what's needed, is a firm one. And if confirmed as Assistant Secretary, I would work with colleagues um, throughout the department and other agencies to uphold that commitment. Uh Today is the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month, and uh, many of us held a call with uh, national leadership. Uh, and one of the questions that uh, points that came up is that it seems that we treat refugees from the southern border below uh, differently than we treat refugees from other people in the world. It seems to me that a refugee, if they meet the, the definition under the law, is a refugee, regardless of where they come from. Do you share that view? Yes, Senator. Anyone who qualifies as a refugee should be given the same treatment and the same consideration. Uh, Ambassador Leaf, I could spend the whole hearing with you, but I won't uh, because we had a good, uh, good session yesterday. But I do, uh, I'll put some questions for the record just so that we can have the record sustained. But I do want to broach one or two of them with you. Over the weekend, Iran and the IAEA reached what seems to be a subpar last-minute agreement to prevent the IAEA from formally censuring Iran. I remain deeply concerned about the details of this agreement, specifically because my understanding is that while the IAEA will have access to the information it needs, it won't be able to see that access. It won't be able to see the actual information in real time. It won't be able to see the information that was taken out or that will be taken out from the storage uh, chips of what was going on since Iran broke off inspections. And it won't be able to see the new information uh, that will be uh, placed in the new storage chips 
to do the video uh, recording of what's going on. So therefore, while there will be, quote unquote, monitoring taking place, there will be no review of the monitoring. Therefore, we will have no information about the status of Iran's program. If there is something called a Pyrrhic victory, that's the ultimate definition of it. So um, Secretary Blinken uh, has responded to that report by warning that Iran is running out of time to reap any benefits of a compliance uh, agreement with the JCPOA. I honestly believe that returning to the JCPOA just as it was uh, does not realize the, the tremendous change in circumstances we have today, um, as well as uh, the fact that Iran's nefarious activities and um, ballistic missiles, destabilization of the region, uh, arms trafficking, and a whole host of other things are equally uh, or as important. So uh, let me ask you, uh, how much time and diplomatic space do you think is left to get to a longer and stronger nuclear deal that also addresses these regional uh, uh, transgressions and attacks by proxies against not only U.S. partners and allies, but also U.S. personnel and facilities in the region. Uh, thank you, Senator, for uh, those questions and uh, those comments. <clears throat> I, I wouldn't want to get into in a hypothetical answer to, to the question of how much time. Secretary Blinken, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, laid down a warning marker with that remark, and, and it's a valid one. Uh, we have been waiting uh, now for two months to go back into a set of discussions which are quite urgent. <clears throat> and as you said, uh, the discussion on the JCPOA, uh, mutual compliance for compliance return to that agreement, is only a starting point. What I would say to your concerns about these other issues, including uh, a supplemental agreement, longer, stronger, but also the ongoing uh, nefarious activities, those are my concerns too. Uh, the administration, in fact, does not view this as a sequen sequential matter in terms of addressing those regional activities. There are ongoing discussions with our uh, most important ally in the region, Israel, as well as other concerned parties, and we work to synchronize and use a, a set of tools, economic sanctions, pressure, uh, occasionally uh, military and other diplomatic tools with them to confront con and constrain Iran in these activities. Is it fair to say that we really don't know where Iran is at in its nuclear program right now? I'm not sure I'd want to characterize it uh, that way, Senator, and obviously there are intelligence estimates uh, to that effect. Yeah, I, I, I get real concerned uh, when I see Mr. Albright uh, suggest that we're one month away. He's a pretty uh, independent uh, verifier. I get concerned when we are heralding the IAEA agreement that basically says well, we'll keep uh, the monitoring, but we can't see anything that's happening and we don't know what's happened in between. That, that, that is not creating safeguard for anybody. So we need to be a lot more robust with the IAEA. This committee will be seeking the IAEA's uh, 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 briefing, which it has not given to date, uh, because uh, we gotta know what we, see, what we are seeing and what we're not seeing. 
and be honest with ourselves, uh, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, I have many que other questions for some of the other nominees, but in fairness to our colleagues, Senator Rush. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, obviously, I share a lot of those concerns also. And Ambassador Leaf, I, I can tell you, and I told uh, Secretary Blinken this uh, when, when we met, and uh, uh, I can take it for what it's worth, but uh, having been through this, uh, this thing with Iran for so long, uh, this business of saying now that you're going to try to get back into the old JCPOA and then there will be add-on negotiations and agreements in the future, with all due respect, I, I think that thinking is just delusional. Uh, there is no way that uh, Iran is going to uh, uh, continue to negotiate and do an add-on agreement if indeed they're able to uh, uh, get the uh, get the JCPOA back where it was and get our sanctions off. So that's my two cents worth, and I understand we have a basic disagreement in that regard, but uh, nonetheless, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be shocked if you can get that done. Um, secondly, you heard the discussion both between myself, from both myself and from the uh, chairman regarding uh, a Syria policy, and uh, we need that. I'm not expecting you to uh, opine on that today because I think you've got uh, your work ahead of you before you can get there. But uh, uh, we we need something that we can articulate and, and move forward on, and we don't have that uh, on on Syria. Uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Doyce, I want to talk about UNRWA for just a minute. Uh, I'm wondering if you share, I, I introduced uh, the Accountability and Transparency Act, UNRWA, Accountability and Transparency Act with 11 of my Senate colleagues. And uh, we share uh, real concerns on UNRWA. What, what are your thoughts on UNRWA? Senator, we share, or I share, the concerns that you expressed in that legislation uh, about the efficiency, the effectiveness, and the neutrality of UNRWA. And so we, we agree, the administration agrees with the premise behind the, the legislation. That said, uh, it's my understanding that UNRWA is a force for stability in the region by providing vital services to Palestinians in need, education for school children, health care for people. And the only viable alternative to UNRWA in those areas would be Hamas. So therefore, while we certainly would agree with the intent of the legislation and the framework agreement that the PRM Bureau entered into with UNRWA accounts for the need to make changes and to redouble efforts to ensure the efficiency, the effectiveness, and, and the neutrality of UNRWA. Well, I, appreciate, I appreciate your thoughts. Um, I don't think simply because there's a, an alternative that's worse, uh, we should take this, in my judgment, uh, a very bad agency and uh, try to make that work. Uh, I, I, I think we should try to make that work, but I think that uh, if it doesn't work, we shouldn't say, well, the only other alternative is Hamas. I, I, I don't subscribe to that, uh, to that theory. But in any event, uh, uh, I think most everyone who's dealt with UNRWA and seen, the, for instance, the textbooks they print for use in their schools is just disgusted that U.S. taxpayer money is, is going uh, down the drain in that regard. So uh, I hope you'll focus on that. I hope you can get them in a better direction, and it's going to take uh, a considerable change in direction uh, for me to embrace uh, uh, what they're doing. 
thank you for your efforts in, in that regard. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, my understanding is Senator Cardin is with us virtually. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, I do want to thank all of our nominees for their willingness to serve our nation during these extremely challenging times. We thank you. We thank your families. Uh, Ambassador Leaf, I, I want to follow up on some of the comments that have already been made. We see some positive uh, developments in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords and Congress has passed it, or the Senate Finance Committee has passed S-1601, which would build on that to have the United States active in trying to get more of the countries in the Middle East uh, to sign on to the Abraham Accords. On the other side of the ledger, we see activities in the United Nations General Assembly that is very much trying to compromise uh, Israel's uh, sovereignty. So just share with me your strategies in dealing with the countries in the region to get more to move towards the Abraham Accord approach with Israel rather than trying to isolate Israel in the United Nations. Thank you, Senator, for uh, that, that set of questions and comments, and I, and I couldn't agree more on, on both counts. So first, with respect to the Abraham Accords, it's, it's a truly exciting set of developments um, in a region that for so long has really not had a lot of good news. And I, if confirmed, uh, very much look forward to seizing the opportunities opened with those nascent relationships and deepening, expanding them, well, really expanding the circle um, beyond uh, the four countries. I think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I would say those, the, the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco probably represented the sort of most forward-leaning of the countries in that regard. But nonetheless, um, and this has been a subject of discussion uh, with the Israeli government, there are other opportunities out there, and I think it, it, it's absolutely uh, self-evidently should be a priority for my work if, if confirmed. And it would, it would thread into the work of every U.S. ambassador in the region so that it was a very concerted and coordinated uh, effort. I, I also agree with you um, in terms of the anti-Israel bias that we see repeatedly come up whether in the UNGA or in, in UN bodies. And if confirmed, I would absolutely work in lockstep with other members of the administration, with uh, our mission to the UN and others um, to push back on that vigorously. Well, I just point out, I think Abraham Accords is a, is a positive incentive for countries to, to, to normalize their relationship with Israel. The actions in the United Nations and its bodies require us to make it clear that there's a price to pay when we see this type of activity take place that is very much against the sovereignty of, a, of our closest ally in the Middle East. So I, I would hope you would also be aggressive in um, activities to, to make it clear uh, that uh, the United States will act on behalf of Israel in regards to the United Nations. Ambassador Noes, I want to ask you a question on immigration. I agree with uh, Chairman Nendez's point in regards to Afghanistan, and that's going to certainly um, uh, be a, a major focus uh, of all of our work in the next several months in order to relocate those at risk. But I want to get closer to our own hemisphere, and, and Senator Menendez raised these issues. Uh, we sh show international leadership by our actions here in America. Yes, we'll show it in regards to the Afghan refugees. But in regards to refugees coming out of our own hemisphere, we certainly have a lot of uh, individuals who've left uh, Venezuela. We have the Central American migration that we know about. 
Can you just share with me the strategy of exercising leadership in our own hemisphere to show that we have the right uh, global policies in regards to migration that can help us not only in dealing with the challenges we have in the Western Hemisphere, but also our leadership globally? Thank you for that question, Senator Cardin. Um, certainly, this hemisphere is, is not alone uh, in having issues with refugees and migration. Uh, one of the administration's major efforts with regard to how to deal with these issues is for Central America. There's a, a, a root causes strategy to get to the causes that lead people to leave their nations. But um, insofar as PRM is concerned, the administration has also put forward uh, a comprehensive migration management strategy, which is an effort, a whole of government effort, to work with U.S. government agencies, but also with the governments of the, of the region and trying to address the issues that lead to migration and to come up with collaborative approaches for dealing with those issues, whether it's providing access to temporary work permits, providing protection, humanitarian assistance in countries where they're needed, um, dealing with issues of corruption, rule of law, uh, and that is a model, Senator, that I believe could be very useful and very effective in dealing with migration questions and migration challenges, refugee challenges elsewhere in the world. Uh, if confirmed, I really would like to do more in the area of humanitarian diplomacy, working closely with our partners uh, and with other governments around the world to address these issues before they become so severe that they lead people to leave their countries. And also to address issues that have led people to leave their countries such that they can find ways to return safely, humanely, and voluntarily to their, to their home countries. So I think there's a lot to be done in the area of humanitarian diplomacy. I think the approach the United States is taking um, in Central America and in Mexico with this holistic whole of government and collaborative approach with regional governments um, is, is, again, a model for these issues around the world. Thank you. We'll be judged by our actions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. My understanding is that there are presently no Republican colleagues uh, seeking recognition. So I will move to Senator Kane. Mr. Chair, thank you. And again, uh, congratulations to the nominees. Ambassador Bauer, one of the uh, wonderful opportunities in the U.S. relationship with France is that France has significant equities all over the globe in areas where the U.S. shares interest. And we work in tandem in Southeast Asia. We work in tandem in the Sahel. I want to ask a question about uh, one of the countries you mentioned, Lebanon. The U.S.-Lebanese relationship, especially with the Lebanese military, has been a strong one. Lebanon is very strategically important. But right now, in Lebanon, there has just been a set of catastrophes, one after the next. And the um, current political situation in Lebanon poses grave risk both to the health and satisfaction and quality of life of everyday Lebanese, but also to surrounding communities. Um, the French government under President Macron has been very involved in trying to promote uh, a better chapter for Lebanon. Uh, should you be confirmed, what might we be able to do uh, the United States and France together to um, figure out ways to, to help Lebanon to a better place. Sorry. 
Thank you for the question, Senator Kane. Um, yes, indeed, it's um, a very challenging situation, and it is my understanding that we're working closely with the French and that the French um, take it very seriously and will be good allies going forward. Um, it's certainly something I would engage on right away, um, should I be confirmed, and um, would also welcome the opportunity to consult with you and other members of this committee um, to develop a best plan for going forward. Excellent. I almost asked that question as a proxy for Senator Murphy, who is the chair of the subcommittee of foreign <laughs> relations that oversees that relationship, and he just was in Lebanon with other members of the committee. I think it's destabilized, an increasingly destabilized Lebanon is a real problem for a yes. lot of nations, including the United States, and we can work together with France on that. Um, Ambassador Leaf, I'm, I, I'm concerned about a number of things in the relationship between the United States and Egypt. There are some positive developments. Um, President al-Sisi met with Prime Minister Bennett and Sharm el-Sheikh recently, which was the first meeting between leaders of Egypt and Israel in a decade. That's a positive. But I'm really worried about human rights issues in Egypt, and they affect a lot of Virginians. Um, there was reporting in the last few months about the involvement of Egyptian intelligence in the murder of Virginia resident, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, I wrote a letter to the Secretary of State last month um, asking uh, the D, uh, Department of State to dig into these allegations and then render some judgment on the potential applicability of 7013C visa restrictions. You're not yet at state. That letter hadn't come to you. Um, but uh, th these are very serious allegations of the involvement of, e uh, of Egypt uh, secret police and intel officials in the murder of a Virginian, a, a journalist. Now, I will say the Egyptian government has denied these allegations. Uh, we spoke directly about it um, with the head of Egyptian intelligence on the committee. But there's an answer to the question of whether or not they're involved. And if they were, there's got to be some consequences. If, should you be confirmed, will, will you take this kind of a request of the Department of State to make an assessment about what occurred and then whether there should be accountability? Will you take this matter with the utmost seriousness? Thank you, Senator, for that question, and uh, it's it's a, an extraordinarily serious um, uh, issue that you've raised. Within the context more broadly, and, and I will say straight up, of course, um, I will take my responsibilities absolutely seriously if confirmed uh, under both U.S. law and, and U.S. policy on, on human rights. I, I would just offer another um, couple of comments on this broader issue that you raise, the, the how human rights feature in the relationship with Egypt. And you'll have seen this week that Secretary Blinken uh, made a decision on this issue of 300 million of the 1.3 billion um, of foreign military financing for Egypt. And it was a, a very methodical and, and carefully thought through um, set of decisions um, to signal to reaffirm, really, that as with countries around the world, human rights do feature at the center point of relations with Egypt. Now, we have longstanding uh, national security interests in that rela relationship. Egypt has been a strategic partner of, of enormous importance uh, for the U.S., but also for the region and, and for Israel in particular. Um, and as you said, this was a really remarkable thing that for the first time in a decade, uh, you had the 
two leaders meet publicly. The fact that it's they might have met before, leaders have met before, but they couldn't do it publicly in front of their publics, uh, you know, speaks to how unsteady that relationship was. Um, so I will just uh, pledge to you that if confirmed, I will absolutely uh, keep my focus on these human rights issues and, and the case that you cite in particular. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Leaf, if, if confirmed, you're going to inherit a region that has been transformed in remarkable ways in the recent years, uh, most significantly by the Abram Accords. The Abram Accords were historic peace agreements, the first in decades uh, achieved in the region. Uh, they were achieved, I believe, because the prior administration abandoned the longstanding U.S. policy of deliberate ambiguity between Israel and the Palestinians and rather pursued a policy that America unequivocally stands with our friend and ally, the nation of Israel. That clarity produced the Abraham Accords, I believe. That clarity was manifested in multiple ways, including moving our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, including withdrawing from the disastrous Obama-Iran nuclear deal. The Biden administration seems bound and determined to unwind all of the positive progress made in the Middle East, to run away from the peace deal, to embrace the strategic ambiguity that for decades failed, and the Biden administration seems to want to go back to that failure. When it comes to the Abraham Accords, the Biden administration, frankly, has been almost comical going so far as quite literally putting out a guidance at the U.S. State Department not to utter the words Abraham Accords. In writing, officials in the Biden State Department saying, we don't use those words here. Instead, they are to be referred to as normalization agreements. And I will say that was not simply a written guidance, but sadly, it's a guidance that seems to be followed. Just yesterday, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, gave a speech on the anniversary of the Abraham Accords in which she refused to utter the words Abraham Accords. The entire thing seems like a Monty Python skit. I understand that the Biden administration is not a fan of Donald Trump. But throwing away historic Middle East peace agreements because the administration doesn't like their predecessor is extraordinarily foolish. It is harmful to the United States and it is harmful to our friends and allies. Can you tell this committee in, in your judgment what is the importance of the Abraham Accords and should they be maintained and strengthened, or should they be undermined and weakened? Senator, I agree with you. Those are historic accords. The Abraham Accords changed and, 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 and brought a new dynamic to a region that has really had very little in the way of good news in, in recent years. There's no question in my mind 
that they have already contributed and will contribute still more to peaceful coexistence and to economic integration. And that last piece has been very much missing across this, this region. So I can assure you that if confirmed, I will make it a top priority, not just to help foster the deepening of the roots of those relationships, and they, they each of them have different dynamics according to their own societies and, and cultures, but I will work with those governments and with the Israeli government to strengthen and deepen those, those accords and then widen the circle, absolutely. There are more opportunities out there. They're not quite as in a state of uh, readiness, perhaps, as the UAE was, but there, there, is, there are prospects there. They start with some very significant moves on people-to-people -people contacts, and that's one of the things that I really, um, I think, was most striking in the case of the UAE and Bahrain. Those governments had began a very subtle process of beginning to warm their public up to the idea. And that's the sort of thing that, frankly, the U.S. has to push on with other governments, and I'm, I'm ready to do it. Thank you. Ms. Smith, as you know, I'm deeply concerned about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I think that President Biden made an enormous and indeed a generational geopolitical mistake by effectively giving that pipeline to Vladimir Putin. In your judgment, what will be the national security harms, the economic harms to Europe and to the United States if and when that pipeline goes online and is operational? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Uh, I agree with the President. I agree with you that the pipeline is a bad deal. It is a geopolitical project, as you yourself have noted many times. It is a project that undermines the safety and security of our friends in Europe, particularly in Ukraine. I do not feel that this deal, this pipeline in particular, will be something that will bring added security to Europe, quite the contrary. I look forward, though, if confirmed, to working with our allies, our partners, on the repercussions of this pipeline as I get to Brussels. I feel obliged to note the President does not believe that, because the only reason the pipeline is being completed is because Joe Biden waived the sanctions that were passed by an overwhelming bipartisan majority of Congress. We had stopped the pipeline for over a year, and the Biden administration decided, because they wanted to make nice with Germany, they were going to give Putin a generational, multi-billion dollar gift, and they turned an incredible foreign policy victory into a foreign policy failure. Uh, the senator has expired. I, I would just note for the record, uh, an hour ago, the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, was heralding the Abraham Accords and called it as such. And the United Arab Emirates uh, promoted it as part of uh, their foreign service movement. So uh, the, the administration has used, and I'm sure will continue to use, the term uh, Abraham Accords. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Rish, and Chairman Menendez, thank you for um, setting the record straight about uh, both uh, the bipartisan support for the Abraham Accords here and the ways in which the State Department continues to advocate for their full implementation um, to the nominees before us. Uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. 
Um, let me thank your families uh, and those who've helped um, support you uh, in your careers in service so far and will support you um, should you be confirmed. Let me just ask a few quick questions. I have less than five minutes, uh, but I'm delighted to have a chance uh, to ask each of you a question or two. Um, Ms. Bauer, if I might, um, what lessons did you learn from your time as ambassador to Belgium about working with the Foreign Service? Um, and you've said uh, to me when we had a chance to talk before this hearing that one of the most important jobs an ambassador faces is protecting um, State Department employees and other American citizens abroad. How do you intend to help contribute to that um, sacred challenge, that obligation, that opportunity that our diplomats have abroad? Thank you, Senator Coons. Um, indeed, working with the team at the State Department and the interagency team in Brussels was an incredible privilege. It is a skilled and dedicated group of people, um, and it's part of what made me so excited about the opportunity to potentially serve again, was to think of working on these, um, working with the same extraordinary team. Um, on the security front, I think it is a matter of having really close communication, no silos, working as a team, making sure everyone trusts each other, and we're having really regular communications, not only within the team in France, should I be confirmed, but throughout Europe, and of course, consulting with the Senate and other important partners. Um, thank you. I didn't mean to skip over Ms. Noyes, if I might. I um, your role is going to be absolutely critical. Um, and as the daughter of Cuban refugees, I think you bring an important um, and unique perspective to this vital role. Um, if you just share with me briefly uh, what lessons from your service as Ambassador Croatia would you bring to PRM? And um, how should the State Department address um, the visa backlog? And how will you work to increase international cooperation uh, on uh, difficult and urgent issues like um, resettlement of refugees and humanitarian assistance. Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, I think I've learned lessons from throughout my career in a variety of different positions, not just as ambassador, but even as the acting director of FSI, lessons about management, about teamwork, about uh, how to work to, to I would, pick up part of Denise's answer about working with the team and making sure that everyone makes a contribution. One of my biggest priorities, if confirmed, would be to help rebuild the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, um, which is badly understaffed at this point at a time when it is really being stretched to carry out a lot of functions. So a, a big priority would be rebuilding that bureau. Um, and in rebuilding that bureau, working to rebuild the U.S. refugee admissions program, which is critical for America's humanitarian leadership around the world, and working with partners in the State Department and in the interagency on helping to resettle the Afghan refugees. Insofar as the visa backlog question, Senator, um, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration does not play a specific role on that issue, but I know that my colleagues at the Department of State are working very, very hard to process the remaining um, special immigrant visas for, for Afghans and to do whatever is possible to help people at risk in Afghanistan. Well, Thank I think, you. I think that is urgent work, and I look forward to working with the chairman to ensure that the resources for that are available. 
Might I ask two more quick questions, or are we? Since, 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 since the Senator is the Chairman of the Foreign Ops Subcommittee and Appropriations, definitely go ahead. Uh, thank you. If I, if I might, Ms. Smith, uh, NATO um, has just concluded um, one of its most important longest missions, um, and it's now, I think, uh, facing a different um, range of threats, challenges, and adversaries. Um, China's expanded its influence, uh, not just in the Indo-Pacific, but in, the, in Europe, investing in infrastructure, heightening its emphasis on the Arctic, uh, targeting uh, countries uh, in uh, Eastern, Central, and Western Europe uh, with disinformation campaigns. And in June, the NATO heads of state uh, issued a statement that Beijing presents systematic, um, excuse me, systemic challenges. What risks do you think China currently poses to the NATO alliance and European stability? And how would you, if confirmed, work with NATO to counter China's malign influence? Thank you, Senator, for that question. I do worry about the dangers posed by China in the Euro-Atlantic area. I think about the investments that China is making in critical infrastructure across the continent. I think about their own investments in disruptive technology, the lessons they are learning from Russia on utilizing disinformation, their evolving maritime presence, what they're doing in the Arctic, uh, I really could go on. The good news, as you noted yourself, Senator, is that the alliance now has conducted its first China review in 2019. The alliance just recently stated at its summit this past June that it is a systemic challenge to the liberal word, world order. Going forward, if confirmed, I would look forward to working with the allies as we draft the next strategic concept to make sure that the challenges posed by China to the wider Euro-Atlantic region are featured prominently in the strategic concept. I would also look forward to working with them on acquiring better tools to counter some of the malign activities that China is pursuing. Well, thank you. Thank you to all of you, and thank you for your indulgence, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for being here today. Um, this is an important hearing. I hope that you move quickly to the floor, but then you are destined to sit in limbo because we have two members of the Senate, a list that is growing, that have decided to hold up all national security nominees. This is a growing danger to the national security of this country, and I would hope that my Republican colleagues on this committee would hope us address this uh, very quickly because every single day that we don't have ambassadors, every single day that we don't have assistant secretaries, uh, is a day that America is not representing its interests around the world. Um, a few questions for the panel, and thank you all for your tremendous service to the country. We're so grateful for your willingness to continue it. Um, Ambassador Leaf, uh, I admit to getting a little confused when I hear the administration talk about the strategy moving forward on the JCPOA. Um, obviously, Senator Menendez and I have slightly different views on this issue. But uh, what I understand to be the administration's policy is that while we absolutely believe that at the same time we can work on addressing Iran's nuclear program and its support for terrorist groups uh, and its other malevolent uh, behaviors in the region, uh, our belief continues to be that a compliance for compliance deal on the JCPOA um, is meritorious on its um, on its own, and that um, if we can get back into the JCPOA, then that makes it a, a, a lot easier to confront 
many of their other behaviors around the region. So I just want to confirm that that continues to be the position of the administration, that um, understanding how difficult it is to figure out how to get back into the agreement, that we still believe that it is um, uh, a priority to get back into the agreement, and we are not conditioning the restart of the JCPOA on an additional set of agreements on a whole host of non-nuclear um, behaviors by the Iranian regime. Um, Senator, the only uh, word I would disagree with in that set of statements and that, that question was whether it would be easier following re-entry into JCPOA to deal with all those other problems. But no, to be, to be serious, uh, the administration is committed to a methodical uh, diplomatic effort to to rejoin the JCPOA on the basis of mutual compliance. Um, that is an overriding uh, national security imperative because at this point, Iran's nuclear program is, is untrammeled. So the priority is getting it back into a box, but notwithstanding those diplomatic efforts in Vienna, the administration continues in parallel, in tandem, to, on a constant basis, address the regional dimension of Iran's uh, uh, destructive behavior, destabilizing behavior. So um, there is uh, definitely a desire on the part, an objective on the part of the administration to then build upon, in, in nuclear terms, a longer, stronger deal. But the ongoing work is ongoing. It will continue apart. Um. I'm going to submit a question to the record on Lebanon. I won't ask a question to you now, but uh, Hezbollah is spinning up a very effective narrative there right now about the United States blockade of energy resources into the country, um, and they are offering ships of their own through Iran. Uh, we've got to solve for this very quickly. Um, the, the narrative is pervasive, uh, and there are ways in which we can creatively try to address the fuel shortage, the crisis in Lebanon, uh, right now, but we have to do it um, very, very quickly. Um, and so I'll submit a question of the record. Because I wanted to ask uh, one final question here to you, uh, Ms. Smith. I think sort of one of the biggest scams going is the way that we assess NATO contributions to the alliance, despite the fact that the adversaries to the United States and our NATO partners are using all sorts of um, uh, means other than conventional military pressure. Uh, to try to um, undermine the democracies of NATO. We continue to assess whether or not you are a full member in good standing by the amount of your defense spending, even though Russia is delighting in asymmetric warfare that is defensed in ways other than aircraft carriers and ships and brigades. Is there a better way moving forward that we can assess whether members of the NATO alliance are in good standing other than their sort of s the simple amount of their GDP that they are spending on sort of hard traditional conventional defense spending? Well, Senator, thank you uh, for that question. Traditionally, NATO's deterrence and defense posture has been based on three legs of a stool. So conventional capabilities, 
nuclear capabilities and missile defense capabilities. And so we always measured allies' contributions in a very conventional framing. But in recent years, as you noted, increasingly the NATO alliance is defining its posture, deterrence and defense posture, in other ways. It's looking at cybersecurity, increasingly working that into operational planning. It's looking at those gray zone threats, the hybrid threats, disinformation, coercion, um, other forms of gray zone tactics. And so going forward on this question of burden sharing, there's a lot to do. First and foremost, we have to keep a laser-like focus on 2%. Allies all made that commitment to get to 2% in 2014. Many have gotten there or will get there by 2024, but we have to continue to apply pressure on those that will not yet meet that target by 2024. Increasingly, I think we we have to have conversations with our allies about other aspects, readiness, force generation, capability gaps broadly defined. And so if confirmed, I would look forward to working with our allies on this broader definition of NATO's deterrence and defense posture and the question of burden sharing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. I understand Senator Van Hollen is with us uh, virtually. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me uh, join my colleagues in congratulating all of you on your nominations, uh, and I'm impressed with the great uh, depth and breadth of foreign policy experience uh, represented on this panel. I also want to associate myself with the comments of both the Chairman and Senator Murphy uh, that the ever longer line of nominations being held up on the Senate floor uh, hurts our national security and undermines um, our capacities. Uh, Ambassador uh, Noyes, uh, you've got a huge amount of challenges um, in the portfolio you've been nominated uh, to oversee, uh, including recent developments in Afghanistan, and I'm going to be submitting some questions to the record uh, for you. Uh, Ambassador Leaf, uh, I just returned from a trip to Lebanon, Israel, and the West Bank with Senator Murphy and others. And I, I have a couple questions uh, related to that trip. Starting with Lebanon, uh, we were pleased to see that after over a year uh, of no government, uh, last Friday, we finally have a government uh, in Lebanon. As you know, that's just the first step. Uh, they've got to address the economic crisis, uh, bring more accountability and transparency to a system that is rife with political corruption. Uh, keep elections on track uh, for next year. Uh, but the, the one institution in the country that is almost universally respected uh, is the non-sectarian Lebanese armed forces. Uh, and uh, my question to you, and it's a simple question, uh, is do you agree uh, it's in our national interest to continue to support that effort? And I will add one of the things that uh, was highlighted during our visit uh, was that because of the economic crisis, uh, pay for members of the Lebanese Armed Forces has just collapsed. Uh, in fact, there's a story today, the Lebanese Armed Forces is uh, providing helicopter rides for tourists uh, in order to raise money. And the pay of the Lebanese Armed Forces is now way below uh, what Hezbollah pays its, uh, its militias. So uh, question, uh, do you agree that continued U.S. support for the Lebanese Armed Forces um, is in our interest of providing uh, some measure of stability, um, 
respect to interfaith communities, intercommunal stability, and national stability? Just yes or no? Yes, absolutely. If you like, well, I, I, can, I can offer a few other thoughts on this. I, I appreciate that. Let me let me get on to the other questions. If I have time at Please. the end, uh, I would I will circle circle back. Um, we also, uh, as I said, went to Israel and the West Bank. Um, in Israel, we uh, affirmed our support for the replenishment of the Iron Dome uh, and our support for the Abraham Accords. Um, we also discussed uh, both in uh, Israel and the West Bank, uh, President Biden's uh, plan uh, to reopen the consulate in Jerusalem that had been in existence for over a hundred years uh, before the previous administration terminated it. Uh, so uh, my question uh, is, um, does the president uh, plan to uh, continue uh, with that you know, commitment to open the consulate and what would be the timetable? Uh, yes, Senator, that is the president's commitment. Um, and he believes, and, and Secretary Blinken spoke to this issue over the last couple of months, it's, it provides, reopening the consulate provides a critical platform for diplomatic engagement with both the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian people. I, I can't really say what the, um, I'm not privy to the, the plans in the State Department in terms of timing of that, but if confirmed, of course, I will work to execute the, uh, the, the president's commitment. Well, thank you. Um, in my remaining time, let me now circle back uh, to Lebanon. And in addition to elaborating on the Lebanese Armed Forces, just follow up with the, the issue that Senator Murphy raised, which is, uh, as you know, um, Iran right now is sending tankers with fuel uh, to Hezbollah via a port in Syria to be transported uh, over, over land. Uh, our ambassador, our really great ambassador there, Ambassador Shea, has uh, expressed her strong opposition to that, but also proposed an alternative, um, more, much more sustainable plan, uh, a real plan uh, that involves uh, bringing electricity from Egypt uh, through Jordan uh, to Lebanon, but would have to transit Syria. Um, there are issues of whether or not that's compliant with the Caesar Act or whether a waiver would be required. Can you just um, offer your thoughts on, on that in addition to the Lebanese Armed Forces. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, and, and thank you for calling out um, uh, um, uh, Ambassador Shea for her, for her great efforts there on the ground with her team. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You, the, the issue of this acute energy crisis, it's, it's really, you know, it's side by side with the general disintegration of the economy, which is, as you and Senator Murphy um, saw, is having a terrible, deleterious effect across society and is crumbling the foundations of, of the laugh itself. I mean, the currency has lost 90% of its value in the last two years. So imagine what a, what a, what a soldier makes. Um, on this issue of, of an energy solution, um, side by side with this, frankly, PR stunt by Hezbollah, um, it, this is a regionally produced uh, solution or proposed solution, which as you say, it's our partners, Egypt and Jordan, who have teamed together to look at the issue of excess electricity and natural gas to get it across Syria into Lebanon. Um, this is a project that, as I understand it, is endorsed by the World Bank. 
So the State Department is looking at it carefully within the, the framework of U.S. law and sanctions policy, uh, but it, it shows some promise on the face of it. And of course, the department will, will consult uh, thoroughly with, with Treasury on the way forward. But it, it certainly offers the prospect of a cheaper, cleaner, and, and defensible uh, uh, solution, uh, short-term fix to what is a, a larger, terrible uh, uh, pro uh, problem in Lebanon. And the first step, um, of course, is that they have finally, uh, after 13 months, uh, put together a government, uh, which is only the first step uh, important economic reforms have to follow after. And I will just say finally on the LAF, um, support for the LAF as the, the really true cross-confessional institution of public trust and, and capability in the country will remain a priority for this administration. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, let me follow up on, on one point that uh, Senator Van Hollen made, and uh, I look forward to hearing back from the department. I, I helped write the Caesar Act, uh, and I do not want to give relief uh, to uh, the Assad regime. However, uh, in this particular case, for these particular circumstances, uh, if the department makes it a determination that that is the only impediment uh, towards uh, an agreement for energy flow into Lebanon, uh, I'd ask them to come to me because we, I, I think it's important enough to find a way forward. Uh, let me uh, also follow on question, uh, Ambassador Leith, that was uh, promoted to you by Senator Murphy, and, and he and I do have a respectful disagreement uh, about the JCPOA. Uh, I understood your answer to say that if we can get a compliance for compliance deal, we'll do that, and then the stronger, longer comes later. Is that it? Um, Senator, what I, what I meant by that was uh, follow-on negotiations would necessarily look at, at, at building out on, on the JCPOA. Right, but, but they would come later. Following it, yes, sir. Yeah, that's a problem. The conversations that I've had with the administration is that returning to the JCPOA with a commitment uh, from the Iranians for a this a a uh, negotiation on what is longer and stronger, that is something I could support. But if it's just compliance for compliance, and then we wait to see whether the Iranians are actually serious about longer and stronger, that's a problem. Because they will have received what they wanted. And, and let's remember that our circumstances today are different than when we entered the JCPOA. Number one, time has elapsed. The sunset clauses are closer. Some of them have already elapsed on some critical issues. And Iran has moved forward on its abilities and knowledge in terms of enrichment. So we're not in the same place. Even with compliance for compliance, we're not in the same place. So I, I, I don't hold you responsible for this because even though you work at the NSC, uh, it, it's, I'm sure, above your pay grade. But I just want to uh, make it clear that from the chairman's point of view, this is a problem. And so I've... I've given the administration a lot of room on the, the basis that they are looking for an agreement that goes back to compliance, but is also a pathway to longer and stronger, and just that it will happen later on in the hopes that the Iranians will 
be good actors is not something that uh, I can be supportive of. So I, ju I just want to raise that question. I, I think this question is, uh, I mean, that point. I think this question is rather self-obvious, but I just want to do it for the record. Do you commit to fully supporting Israel's right to self-defense and its qualitative military edge, including through U.S. military assistance? Yes, Senator. Okay. Uh, I, I want to go to Lebanon as well. Um, this economic crisis has pushed the middle class uh, into poverty, but the country's political elite uh, still have shown no appetite for needed reforms. Um, now, this new government, uh, it is my hope that they will allow uh, this government to operate. When I say they, Hezbollah, uh, how do we balance the need uh, to help alleviate suffering in Lebanon while directly contributing uh, to security and stability, which directly contributes to security and stability, uh, not only in Lebanon, but Israel and, and throughout the region, but ensure that our assistance is being used to incentivize reforms? Thank you, Senator. You, you've put your finger on, on the crux of the issue. Um, there is a, a situation that in, in, in real terms is, is quite terrifying. Uh, that confronts Lebanon. And I wish the Lebanese political class and its leaders and those who form the caretaker government um, have felt the same sense of urgency about the situation that outsiders like the US government, the French government and others have felt about the situation. So there is uh, at, at play here a need for uh, pressure and inducements, but really not inducements in, a, in an immediate sense. It's rather that this government, uh, having uh, been formed, it is only the first minimal step on what has to be a long road of structural economic reform, um, which will then unlock, uh, be it international financing, loans, um, and, and other forms of, of, of foreign assistance. Uh, the U.S. administration has, the Biden administration has been uh, working this set of issues closely with France and, and, and several other regional partners um, to provide that constant pressure on individuals uh, as well as, as uh, the, the government to make it clear that there is, there is no rescue coming from outside. The solution to Leban uh, Lebanon lies in Lebanese hands. Uh, but it, it is going to be a long, slow road ahead. Well, I hope we will do what is uh, necessary to try to get them to uh, be part of the decision-making necessary so they can get IMF funding and reforms uh, and move on. And I, I think there is a great will in the Congress to help Lebanon, but Lebanon must help itself uh, in that regard. And, and, and I think if the message is there that we are standing willing to help, uh, then the onus is upon its uh, own leaders to, to create that opportunity. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I just want to touch on Egypt with you and then I'll move on. Uh, Egypt is, uh, is both an incredibly important security partner uh, to us, to the region, uh, to Israel. Uh, I was in Greece this summer. I spoke to the foreign minister. He made a very big point about Egypt's uh, stability in the region. Uh, they're a member of the East Med Gas Forum, along with uh, Greece, Cyprus, Israel, and Jordan. Uh, they work to de-escalate the conflict between Israel and Hamas. 
in the past conflicts. So they obviously are playing a, a significant role in that regard. They have issues as well. Um, they have issues uh, with uh, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or what we call the GERD. And um, uh, when I speak to them, I believe that they are serious about their red lines on the GERD. And uh, the, while they do not seek it, uh, I, I certainly think the last thing we can avoid is a conflict there at the end of the day. So I hope uh, that you will join whoever is in the administration focused on this uh, to try to find a resolution. And of course, we have our continuing challenges on human rights. Uh, I, I know that the Egyptians argue that look at what we're doing for the quality of life for the Egyptian people. That should be considered human rights too, but imprisonment and unlawful detention uh, is also not acceptable under any set of circumstances. So we have to press them on all these different fronts. And I will assume that that is something that you will do if confirmed. If confirmed, I, I will absolutely do that. And you've sketched out exactly uh, the, the, the color, the texture, the complexity of that relation, relationship, but it is quite, quite strategic. Thank you very much. Ms. Uh, Smith, uh, I have s some real concerns about NATO in terms of where we're headed and your time there will be very important. Uh, they fall in, in, in two buckets. Uh, one is NATO, of course, was created as a security architecture, which has been exceptionally uh, successful, but it was also founded on a set of principles uh, of uh, values that were joined by the member nations. And of course, uh, the provision of the NATO treaty that says an attack on one is an attack on all is a critical nature of that. We've reaffirmed that. But what happens in the eventuality that an attack by one NATO member against another NATO member takes place? It's a serious issue. And while we never envisioned that, I'm deeply concerned uh, about uh, Turkey's actions in the Eastern Mediterranean against another NATO ally, Greece, where we have Suda Bay, where we are deepening our relationship. We're on the verge of, of signing a new defense uh, cooperation agreement, a memorandum of understanding, hopefully in October. Um, uh, I think that's a discussion that NATO is going to have to have. I, I'd like to get your impressions on that. Thank you, Senator. Um, NATO, as you know, recently spent some time um, drafting this 2030 report, thinking about where the allies want to take the alliance towards 2030 and what capabilities it would need, uh, what new mechanisms, mechanisms it might need, what measures it could undertake to address some new challenges. But really at that heart of that report sits the importance of alliance cohesion and unity. And that's a theme that runs throughout the report. And as I noted in my opening remarks, I am concerned about some of the actions we're seeing in some NATO member states that bring into question whether or not each member state is upholding our shared values, our shared values of democracy, individual liberty, rule of law. If confirmed, I would work to ensure that we can return our focus back to alliance, unity, solidarity, and resolve. On, on your question about Turkey more specifically, this is an ally inside the NATO alliance that has 
played uh, a key role in some of its cooperation with both the United States and other NATO allies in the counterterrorism realm. But we have also had some really hard questions uh, with Turkey and some tough discussions, particularly about their decision to purchase the S-400s, which all of us have made clear are not compatible with the alliance, not interoperable, and I think rightly, Past U.S. administrations, other allies have warned the Turks that these types of purchases cannot be made operational, they cannot be maintained, they shouldn't have been purchased in the first place. And so we have to continue to drive the message home to our friends in Ankara that it's important that we focus on that alliance cohesion. So yes, we can have some tough conversations with our friends in Ankara, difficult discussions about human rights as well, but also acknowledge that Turkey is an ally and that all of us want Turkey to remain facing westward. Uh, we, we want them facing westward as long as they're also sharing westward values. Um, when you purchase the S-400, which is uh, in violation of U.S. law, CATSA that I help write, when you uh, totally inter not interoperable with the NATO alliance, when you uh, commit actions that instigate against another NATO ally in Greece, you overfly their airspace, you invade their territorial waters, you threaten their exclusive economic zone. When we say that there are more lawyers and journalists in prison in Turkey than in any other part of the world, and there are some bad parts of the world, that speaks volumes uh, about uh, not sharing on values. Uh, with the, what they did in Azerbaijan, uh, uh, in the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh region, I mean, I, it's just the list is replete. So I just hope that you will be going uh, clear-eyed uh, with an understanding of this challenge. Yes, we, we want them to be everything we aspired of them, the bridge between East and West, the secular, uh, more democratic country, a strong NATO ally respecting the rule of law. But under President Erdogan, that's not the reality. And as it is in life, we have to deal with that which is the reality, not that, that which we aspire to. So uh, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll be thinking about that, because we have to answer the question, God forbid, that one NATO ally attacks another. What is the answer of the alliance then? Secondly. Uh, I hope you'll pay attention. I think you discussed some of this uh, with a combination of NATO's mission in what is the new hybrid warfare that particularly Russia has done. Uh, we need to uh, be able to think about how we respond in that regard when uh, Russia uses uh, forces that are irregular, but they are Russian forces for all intents and purposes, whether they're the Wagner Group or others and at the end of the day threatens stability in the region, as well as the new cyber uh, challenges that we have, which are a new form of warfare. Are, are those items that you'll be uh, paying attention to, if confirmed? Absolutely. Russia remains the biggest geopolitical threat to the Euro-Atlantic region, certainly will be the biggest military threat to the NATO alliance for the foreseeable future, certainly over the next decade. NATO has done a lot to enhance its deterrence and defense posture since Russia went into Ukraine in 2014. But as you note, Senator, there's more work to be done. Russia's aggression continues. We have to hold Russia accountable for their actions across the full spectrum of instruments, whether we're talking about conventional capabilities, 
flying into NATO airspace, acts of intimidation, or cyber attacks. NATO has done a lot to take on the cyber challenge, uh, particularly in 2016, acknowledging that this is a new domain for the alliance, but we do have more work to do in that regard. Well, thank you. We look forward to you getting there soon, because I think these issues are really percolating as we speak. Finally, uh, Ambassador Bauer, I don't want you to think you're not the object of my affection. Uh, uh, in terms of any questions. Uh, let me ask you, uh, President Macron has sought to advance a concept of strategic autonomy, to use his words, which some have interpreted as uh, France distancing itself from the United States and creating tensions within NATO. Uh, what, what are your views on this question of strategic autonomy and uh, what would you be saying uh, upon confirmation to President Macron about it. Well, thank you for the question. Um, as Ms. Smith was noting, um, the uh, NATO is the premier trans transatlantic forum for national security. That that is for us our top priority is our NATO alliance, um, and France is indeed a very good partner on that. And I think um, I would. I greatly appreciate their interest in strengthening security in Europe, and I would ask them perhaps as their first step to help us in encouraging those who are not meeting their commitments to the 2% in NATO and to other capabilities within NATO to do that. All right. I, I get the sense of being stronger. I just hope that it's stronger in uh, complete alignment uh, with NATO. We're all for being stronger. Uh, but the last thing we need is a separate parallel uh, effort uh, uh, with NATO when NATO can use all the strengthening it can get. So I think that will be one of your, your important jobs. And the last thing I'd just say, commend to you that uh, the French care a great deal about Lebanon, and uh, yes. we've heard that there's been some engagement. I, I hope you will deepen that and play with uh, uh, Ambassador Leaf and others uh, a role to bring this whole of combination of governments together. I think the stability in Lebanon is incredibly important. I also, uh, uh, I've had many discussions with the French ambassador here, as well as the French foreign minister uh, and some of their negotiators on the Iran portfolio. Um, we've talked to them about uh, what the administration now describes as stronger and longer, that there has to be more than just a return to the JCPOA. They seem to suggest that, yes, we, we recognize that. And I hope that you will be able to deepen that uh, uh, approach uh, if you are confirmed uh, to your position. Thank you. That would certainly be a priority for me. Thank you. All right. Uh, I have no other uh, members, uh, virtually or otherwise. Uh, we thank you all uh, for your testimony. The record for the hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, September 16, 2021. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. We would say to our nominees that uh, there will inevitably be questions for the record for you. We'd ask you to uh, answer them fully. And, and I say that because we very often get answers that are very superficial, which then causes members to hold up a nominee's business meeting uh, and we have to go back to the department to say this answer isn't uh, sufficiently answered. So to the extent that you get a question,
please answer them expeditiously, answer them fully, so we can uh, have your nominations be brought up at a business meeting. With the thanks of the committee to all of you for your willingness to serve, this hearing is adjourned.